Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Today I want to talk about a, um, or do another of my uh, Campaign Corner series. And I want to talk about a campaign that we've actually uh, returned to recently, prompted by the uh, release of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition role-playing game. Now, regular viewers, or listeners, I should say, of of this uh, podcast may know that my uh, sensibilities tend to go a little more um, old-school with a lot of uh, fantasy games, Um, Starfinder, of course, being the noticeable exception there. But um, we ran, um, last year, we ran a a fairly lengthy campaign that started off uh, playing the Pathfinder 2nd Edition playtest set in Greg Gillespie's awesome Barrow Maze, this sprawling uh, old-school Mega Dungeon uh, game, and it's uh, it's a really, really, really great product. And um, with the release of uh, Pathfinder 2nd now, at the time of recording, it's been out for about uh, three weeks now, uh, maybe, yeah, it's about three weeks or so, and, um, you know, it's uh, I was really excited when it came out, and I, I found that everything I liked about the, pa- the playtest has been improved, and it's an even stronger product now, and, and uh, I, uh, I've now run it about five or six times since uh, it, on uh, our YouTube channel since it um, uh, it was re- released. I also recorded a pretty lengthy overview of it. But the interesting thing has been, the reason I thought I would do a campaign corner on this is uh, I've heard, you know, I, I haven't had a game in a long, t- I mean, I don't know, ever. RuneQuest, I had a little bit of this, but I've never had a game quite where quite consistently so many players are emailing me independently saying, Hey, can I get in on this? Hey, can I try this out? Hey, I'd be love to try this out. So I want to talk about the um, the Pathfinder Second Edition game that I've got coming up, and um, yeah, and and then uh, what I've got planned for it. So that's what we're doing this session or this episode. All right. So regular listeners of this podcast may recall that I think the first episode I ever did of this was about um, ludonarrative dissonance in my uh, Barrow Maze campaign. And, and what I had done is I was running an old school, like strictly, you know, as if it was uh, the, um, like, basic D&D. Uh, I ran my original attempt at running a Pathfinder 2nd uh, Edition playtest game like that. And the problem I, I very quickly ran into is that the because combats were taking such a long time and because it was making... Um, because I was running at uh, Theater of the Mind as well, too, it just was a really bad fit for system um, between the Pathfinder 2nd Edition playtest and the uh, the Barrow Maze as I was running it, at least. And um, what we ended up doing is uh, I switched to uh, Kevin Crawford's, or a kludge together version of Kevin Crawford's uh, Scarlet Heroes game, which uh, is uh, ba- very much based on, like, Labyrinth Lord or Basic D&D. And that system obviously is a lot more um, pared down than what the uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition game was in the sense that there was just, you know, um, yeah, just, I mean, there, there wasn't as much mechanically to that game, uh, certain, at least in the tactical combat uh, portions. And what that meant was that uh, because there's a couple things that were, that were not working with that uh, first um, uh, attempt. Like for one, uh, I was using random encounters without really considering how effectively challenging those random encounters would be. And, like, uh, that's... Random encounters are not undoable in uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Uh, it's just that what I was doing, instead of... I was rolling as if it was uh, basic D&D. So if I rolled, like, you know, six toads or something like that, um, giant toads were a, re- a recurring feature in that in that particular game, and they killed one player character. 
And what we ended up with, uh, what would happen is we'd say, you know, roll toads and I'd roll, you know, say four of them. Um, and I would just look up the rules for the Pathfinder equivalent and then just run it. The trouble is, is that what that didn't recognize was just how much, uh, like how different the scale was between, say, that and like a random amount of, of skeletons. You know, uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition does this cool thing where you can set difficulties that range uh, all the way from, you know, uh, four levels below your character, your player characters, to four levels above. That's where your... Um, that's your range of, of uh, adversaries you can use, you know, in your game. So it's pretty, especially once they start getting some levels, it, it provides a really great range of uh, uh, adversaries that continue to be, you know, present in a game for a long time. And it also means that you can actually effectively use things that are up to about, for, even for a first level party, up to around uh, challenge rating five. The trouble is, is the way that the math plays out is that it, uh, it sort of works uh, by a combination of the way the the actual stats are set on the characters and the uh, player character bonuses and the adversaries and by virtue of the way critical hits work in it. Criticals now occur if, not only if you roll a nat 20, uh, but you also if you exceed the target number by 10. Um, and conversely, if you fail it by more than 10, there's a critical fumble. So, the, But the crit hits are really the more important thing because they just flat double damage now. Uh, you don't roll damage twice, you just double whatever you rolled. So the, the way that that um, has an effect is that it makes low-level adversaries feel like uh, minions, and it makes uh, upper-level adversaries uh, feel like uh, bosses, you know, because they're hitting more often, they're hitting harder, and, you know, they're at, their abilities are going to trigger more often, so it really can make for a fun uh, boss mechanic without having to actually create uh, a, a separate boss mechanic. The thing is, when I ran it the first time, I didn't really recognize that, and so what I would do is effectively throw out a random amount of bosses, and, you know, it's just, it's not, it, it it's not a fair fight, like, and I mean, I've talked before about how I like how combat is war, not sport in old school games, but there's a difference between war and just an ambush massacre, and that's what we ended up having was just like, if they were a bunch of first level uh, adversary or a bunch of first level heroes, um, and then they fought, say, you know, five third level things, even third level, a ghoul, I think is a second or third, I don't know, ghoul's only first level, but uh, even like, uh, you know, a, a bunch of those, um, boy, oh boy, like it could really make for, uh, if not a party wipe, they certainly were losing all their henchmen and, um, and like, it would not even like, oh, we might lose them. Like guaranteed, guaranteed the henchmen are down. If they're the first ones attacked, they're gone. Uh, and then it's just a question of whether the heroes can survive through that thing. And some of the encounters were pretty fun. And, uh, and some of the set pieces that I set, like when the encounters where I actually designed the encounter, where I actually, you know, set up a, um, a tomb for them to explore or something like that. Uh, all of that stuff was, uh, was very cool. Uh, but, uh, and worked out really well, but for some of those other ones, it just, I got a sense of frustration from the players where they just weren't progressing anywhere in a two hour session. We would just have nothing but a fight and it was often an unfair fight. So it wasn't really a great, you know, experience. And I, I think we both had a mechanical system that was not servicing the kind of story we were trying to tell with Barrow Maze. And what, and then I don't know whether it's, it's a result of that or whether just the, this is players going where they want in a sandbox, but the players really started actually engaging a lot with some corollary material that I, I introduced. Like I had uh, uh, faction rules that I, I introduced when we first started playing with Pathfinder 2 and I carried those over. And the players started really 
um, you know, spending a lot of time um, interacting with and doing things for the NPCs in the group. And that was just a fun, you know, I mean, that that was um, that was great. I, I loved seeing the players go. And I think when I initially started running it, I was so hell-bent on us just going through the dungeon that I was not realizing that, oh, well, this is the strength of a sandbox game is we can do what the players want. I don't have to force them to do anything. You know, I mean, obviously, like in, in the overarching scope of this, if they really want to defeat whatever evil is causing problems there, they're going to need to go in the dungeon. But if what they're choosing to do in the interim is dealing with a lot of symptoms, that's why, like, why on earth was I forcing them to try and do something different? Like, bad, bad job on my part. So, anyway, um, with this one, I what I decided is to go back to Barrowmaze because when I was home in the summertime, I was talking to a bunch of uh, players, and, oh, there's one other thing that I did. So one other thing I did the first time around is I stole an idea from my buddy um, Jason Hobbs uh, for his Kalmata game. And this may be something that was stolen just from uh, uh, West March's games in general. But he always had everyone be back in town at the end of the session. So a session starts off with the guys going out into the wilderness and then coming back. And the trouble is with the Barrow Maze, uh, where this didn't quite fit as well, is because there is only one thing to explore, or at least at default. So if you're going to go out and explore the Barrow Maze and get back, like you really have to get your ass out there quick if you want to have time in the session to actually explore, in particular in two-hour sessions. Because we played those games in two-hour and four-hour sessions, two hours on Wednesday, four hours on uh, on Friday. So the um, that I think it's a great idea, especially for like if I was going to use Gillespie's second um, mega dungeon, um, the Forbidden Caverns of Archaea, that's got a lot more options in it and uh, I think I could try that. But one thing I, so there's a couple things I learned in the interim. Uh, for one, I've run uh, another uh, sandbox game, two of them actually, with uh, Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, and seeing, one of the things we, we I've realized from those games is that, like we have times when players can't be there, so we just sort of, you know, um, I don't blue haze them or anything like that, we just don't talk about them really. You know, if, if there's a specific scene that would uh, require them to come up and in, in um, you know in the action then yeah we'll deal with them but we don't really you know it's not a big issue it's it's not a it doesn't disrupt the flow of the story if someone's gone for a session or two and then comes back and I it was stupid on my part to not recognize that in uh, Barrowmaze that I did not need to constantly have you know if I wanted to have a rotating table I didn't need to always start at ground zero I could just have people not be there and um, especially when, like, knowing that people were going to be back, presumably. It's not like we had people who were just random players dropping in and playing one session and never coming back, you know, and then introducing big plot changes or whatnot in that one session and never coming back to play. We had people who were coming back, right, fairly regularly, you know, making at least two-thirds of the sessions or sessions. So with that in mind, I um, and recognizing the things that I thought were the errors I made before, I decided to approach Baramese again as my setting. I mentioned that when I was, uh, or I started talking about when I was home for my gaming marathon, we went to, as is tradition, we all went for dinner and we were talking gaming stuff, you know, while, while we were taking our dinner break. And uh, we, while we were sitting around at the Thai restaurant, you know, chatting about the stuff, the thing that really kept coming back is how much everybody loved the Baramese. And I mean, part of that I'm sure is the is the Barrow Maze itself too. Like it's a cool setting. It really plays to my sensibilities where there's wilderness travel that's dangerous and there's undead, which I love using. Um, and um, I uh, I wanted to, uh, what do you call it? Uh, after talking about that, like I was really surprised of just how much they, that that really held as a, um, you know, a favored campaign for the guys. So 
I, uh, when I got back, I had not thought about Pathfinder 2 again, but I did pull out my Bear Maze book again. I was looking it over. And then we, I had run one session of Bear Maze with uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord as well, too, which was really good. That would be a really terrific game to run uh, a horror fantasy uh, campaign with. But um, with the release of Pathfinder 2 and with my reaction that it was even, you know, uh, better than what I had, um, uh, had anticipated or what, better what, than what I thought it was before... I was really keen on, um, what do you call it, on uh, getting back to the Bear Maze and giving it a try again, uh, particularly with Pathfinder 2. And what I decided to do this time is take some of the things I'd learned from Ash, you know, from running my Ash campaigns, from running Star Trek Adventures uh, recently, where uh, it's got a really good mechanic uh, for running um, extended uh, tasks. And uh, I played in a couple of sessions, a few sessions actually, of uh, One Ring. And One Ring has a really, really fun... Uh, sub-mechanics for, um, let's see here, for uh, social interaction, like sort of audiences with with great people and uh, with travel. And both of those are, to be honest, they're skill challenges from 4th edition, just with different dice and different, you know, uh, things that are added onto it. Uh, Skill challenges, if you're not familiar with uh, 4th edition uh, D&D, skill challenges were this thing where, at its very, very, very most basic, it was basically you make X amount of successes before Y amount of failures. And it was usually only only like two failures. But the game used that basic structure uh, of uh, skill challenges versus failures, you know, to model everything from like, you know, contested board games to... uh, um, gosh, like overland travel to scouting out uh, a, um, what do you call it, a, uh, you know, a a keep to see if there were enemies there. Uh, You could model all sorts of different things uh, with that thing. And then you could make them more complicated. You could add different like branching, you know, sub challenges in them. It was really a versatile tool and and had a lot of good ideas in it. And I made a great deal of use out of that. And it was, it made for some really fun, it made it for a fun way to gamify some, uh, I used it for a boxing match one time. Uh, rather than doing a flat-up uh, just combat uh, or uh, ra- recognizing that it was, you know, for this particular prize fight, uh, as much of it was uh, show because that fight was being thrown, <laughs> um, we, uh, yeah, we made it into a skill challenge, and it was a lot of fun, you know, and uh, that, so anyway, so that, um, with the new edition of Pathfinder 2nd, Pathfinder 2nd introduces this, or carries forward this idea they had in a playtest where there are different modes of play over the course of an adventure. There is the uh, encounter mode, which is like combat or, you know, second-by-second kind of scenes with uh, social interaction. There is exploration, which is kind of like if it could run anything from like 10 minutes up to, you know, a full day's worth of travel. That's sort of where a lot of the, you know, social interaction, uh, sub-mechanics and, uh, you know, overland travel rules, searching through the wilderness rules, all that stuff would uh, fit into that exploration uh, phase. Uh, and the final one is down uh, downtime phase. And uh, downtime is very similar. That Clearly, they learned some lessons from how downtime is handled in D&D 5th edition and uh, some other modern games, too. Um, and, and also, I mean, to be honest, to give credit where it's due to 1st edition, Pathfinder had some pretty... Uh, interesting options for how to use uh, downtime rules, how to, you know, incorporate social structures and uh, social organizations with that, both in Ultimate Campaign and in Ultimate Intrigue. Um, But but the thing that that most interested me was the exploration phase, or exploration mode, I should say, because that's where, that's the stuff for traveling over land. And that's the things, I, in my 
uh, both of my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea games, I've made extensive use of the uh, Wilderness Survival Guide, the old AD&D Wilderness Survival Guide, along with some things stolen from Ultimate Wilderness and uh, just ideas I've taken myself uh, to make for a bunch of overland travel rules. And they, um, the mechanics, I, do, I think, do a good job of simulating uh, the 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 peril of traveling through the wilderness without preparation, you know, of, of not having enough food, of not having enough water, of having to, you know, what the challenges are of uh, trucking all your water off into the wilderness, you know, how hard that is and how heavy that shit can get. And, um, and yeah, so anyway, I, uh, what I wanted to do is, is to take some of those lessons, making overland travel a, a fun game, you know, experience, um, making combat, uh, fit with the Pathfinder Second Edition sensibilities, using the um, the exploration mode uh, to also provide ways of interacting with NPCs in town or elsewhere too. So if the players want to pursue that kind of stuff, then you know I've got ways of gamifying that, and um, and yeah, and also I mean to to give it you know a chance to have a fun combat system too, because the Pathfinder Second Edition combat system is is really a lot of fun, and um, in a large part, that is due to the uh, uh, three-action economy that goes on in there. So maybe let's talk about uh, what I'll do. Is that sort of the overview or the lead-up, the background, I guess, to to what I'd done with Barrow Maze before? Um, maybe let me end with just like, well, why Barrow Maze? Like, why on earth would I come back to this as opposed to one of the other dungeons or something like that? I mean, for one, we've got a great deal of, of history with the Barrow Maze. We've got, uh, so in that first effort, we ran about 34 sessions uh, on average, so it's, it's almost 100 hours of time we've spent in the Barrow Maze already. We've really built up some good connections with the characters there, and I imagine that's part of why it resonated and continued to resonate with the players, you know, when I was talking about them, or talking with them about uh, Barrow Maze in June. So that's pretty fun. And um, I want, and, and I mean, it's a really, really, really good product. Uh, you know, it is. it really does a good job of highlighting how little you need to, in order to make uh, for an engaging kind of home base for the players. You know, my players all know the different places in town. They know the NPCs in town. They know who to expect and whatnot. And like, I like, I like that. That makes it, uh, it, it sets it up in such a way so it's easy for them to figure out what they want to do. There's some good um, built-in tensions there that are yours to make of what you want. Uh, there are two different. Uh, like pantheons that are existing in in the uh, in Helix. There's the old faith, and there's the Futurists, and the Futurists are kind of like the evangelical, you know, new gods that are coming out. And um, it's not, it's it's really not written in as to whether or not there's any conflict between the two. But if you, I'm choosing to make something of that in in my game, and um, yeah, it just, I mean, it is a phenomenal springboard, and it's so easy to open up the book and just play with it too. So like, it it's very very easy to pick up and play. Uh, it gives you some good uh, rules for uh, creating uh, barrows as well, too. There's some great random things. And that's actually what started our campaign off. I used those rules to, to generate a, um, uh, a, a place, a barrow, for the players to explore. And that ended up with this... I wrote in this backstory to it afterwards, and then that sort of prompted our, you know, uh, our entire uh, campaign. Uh, one of the major you know, things that is... Uh, uh, that is featuring in this campaign is this idea that there's these four 
guardian barrows that were set up by some ancient civilization to basically watch over what's going on in the barrow maze. And then those things have uh, seemingly become corrupted. And the um, weapons that were used by those champions, uh, each of them individually is pretty powerful, but then when brought together, they become even more powerful. Uh, so there's that Voltron kind of you know element. But I think it's also incentivizing the players to go out and try and um, or at least gives them an option for something to pursue where they can try and figure out what the hell's going on. Um, yeah, so uh, so that is, that's why Barrow Maze and, and the backstory for the Barrow Maze. Maybe let's talk next about what I've done this time with my Barrow Maze. Okay, let's talk about the changes I've made to the uh, campaign so nice I'm running it twice. Uh, so for this run around with the, with the Barrow Maze, uh, what I've decided to do is try and take advantage of as many of the kind of interesting uh, game mechanics and... Uh, by game mechanics, I don't just mean, uh, you know, like the the 2D20 uh, dice resolution or the uh, D20 dice resolution thing. I mean the, you know, the the uh, difference um, that, uh, or rather, the separation of the game into different uh, specific modes of play. Uh, so, including the exploration mode, the downtime mode. Um, for the factions thing, the, the, I'll go from like kind of like the smallest uh, changes or smallest modifications to the largest ones as we go through here. Smallest one, most obvious one is that the uh, downtime mode um, has in, well, not in the core rulebook, but the in the, um, what do you call it, in the uh, first adventure uh, or the first adventure path that was published for uh, Pathfinder 2, they added a new uh, downtime option. Uh, they're doing a really clever thing with the uh, all the modules and the uh, adventure paths this time around. Is they've they they sort of did this before with the Pathfinder adventure paths, and they they've been doing it a little more expressly with the Starfinder adventure paths. Uh, but with this one, with P uh, PF2, what they're specifically doing is calling the back of their modules the toolbox, and it's in there that you're going to find stuff you can repurpose for your own campaigns. Um, so well, the reason I brought up this one for the new adventure path is they've introduced a new downtime action that's effectively called, like, make a friend. And what it is is you spend your downtime action kind of, like, cozying up to one of the NPCs in the uh, setting. Um, in that one, it's set in a town, very much like what the Barrow Maze is. And then if you're successful in that, or depending on how, you, how your task uh, resolves, because remember in uh, Pathfinder 2, there is four different uh, outcomes that come from every dice roll. There's a critical success, there's a crit uh, critical success, uh, flat success, or regular success, there's uh, failure, and then there is critical failure. So uh, depending on how that thing goes, you know, you, um, you might um, have, uh, it'll, it'll basically affect the, uh, the how much this person likes you. It'll bump up their reaction to you, and it'll also provide a specific discount on, uh, on, tool, on supplies. And I like that a lot, because it's a cool way of uh, kind of keeping of making the, the mechanics clear, you know, because sometimes, I, I mean, you, in a role-playing game, you're going to, uh, especially in old-school games where there's not really, like, you know, hard and fast rules for this kind of stuff, but, you know, players will, will make a friend of an NPC in the thing, and you're trying to think of, like, oh, how do I reflect this, you know, uh, mechanically in the game, and rather than just giving an arbitrary amount, it's cool that this gives a clear incentive for the players to work towards, and, uh, and uh, as with a lot of game mechanics uh, that I really love, this is one that forces the players to interface with the fiction. 
and it gives them a mechanical bonus for that. So I really, really, really like that. So that's going to be one thing I'm incorporating into my faction rules is that that's going to be a way for them to kind of buff up or boost the amount of uh, faction benefits that they may receive from, um, you know, doing tasks for the different people in town and give them discounts on some of the supplies or goods that they're going to be, um, you know, uh, securing. Um, then moving on to the exploration phase. Uh, so last night... I, I ran for the first time the set of rules that I've kind of uh, put together to reflect the overland travel. And what I've done in uh, uh, this time around is rather than just sort of muddling through the exploration phase, uh, I decided to intentionally make it clear what sort of like the mini game is. In the core rulebook for Pathfinder Second Edition, they give you good, um, they give you a bunch of good options of, of and uh, examples of different actions that players can take in the exploration phase. And they use some good ideas of what you can do with it, but there isn't any hard and fast specific examples in it. And unfortunately, in the two uh, adventures that are out at the time of recording, uh, there's not examples in there either. And I, I can tell from the ad copy for the Game Mastery Guide that will be coming out in January of 2020 that uh, that is going to have a ton of rules for that. And from the sounds of things, it's basically going to be consolidating and then updating to second edition a lot of the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the um, kind of minigame mechanics that were there for overland travel or exploration in Ultimate Wilderness, the uh, intrigue options and, uh, you know, organization options that were there in Ultimate Intrigue, the campaign downtime options that were there in... Um, uh, ultimate campaign and and so forth. So I mean, there, there's going to be some good ways. Oh, and chases that were in the original game mastery guide, the first edition of that. So uh, without it, but I mean, without having that book out yet, I had to kind of come up with my own. So what I did is decided to steal some ideas from fourth edition D and D, steal some ideas from uh, the actually from Starfinder, which has a really fun chase mechanic uh, that uh, is, I, I think, I. I I, it feels to me that it's uh, it, I, um, that it is different from the one in the Game Mastery Guide, in the first edition Game Mastery Guide, but I actually have to double check. I don't know if it's... I just never really paid attention, but I love the chase mechanic in Starfinder, so I, I use that as part of an idea. And what we did is, in that last session, the, the players, we opened up with the players being pursued. They just rescued this kid from these two hideous, kind of like vampiric little girls, and uh, they, their minions and their father have been pursuing the players, or at least that's what they've been saying has been, they've said that their daddy is going to come get them. So they've been pursuing, they've been pursued by these guys. And what I did is I set up basically each, uh, set up as a three stage, no, sorry, four stage thing. And uh, what I would say is that for each stage, there were certain things that were going to happen. Uh, For one, the, someone in the group was going to be taking the lead and making a test. And that would, there's three different kind of approaches they could do for each of those stages. They could try and bushwhack over land, which would make it harder for the their pursuers to catch up to them. But they would also take a penalty to the fortitude save they'd have to make because it's harder getting through there. And the fortitude saves were going to be reflecting the gradual, you know, winding or wearing down of uh, fatigue as they're, you know, making their way th- across the... Uh, you know, through the frozen uh, depths of the uh, of the Barrowmore, um, and the let's see here. Uh, so th- that was one approach was bushwhacking. One was to just follow the trail, but because uh, which would be the easiest route, they they had found a trail all the way out to where they rescued this kid. They're just going to follow it back. 
the advantage there is it's faster and easier. You know, no penalties to their fatigue, but doesn't make it harder for the guy to fought, to pursue them. Um, and then finally, what they could do is uh, they could double back. And what double back was, those other two ones would be using the survival check, which is uh, the person, you use that for tracking and overland travel and getting lost and whatnot. Instead, what the players could do is uh, double back, which would be a stealth check, and that automatically puts a distance, puts a gap of one. Uh, the pursuers start two behind, and then depending on whether if they pursuer, um, well, let me talk about that in a moment. Uh, so they start two behind, they could automatically put a one uh, one more gap in between the two, but what it meant was that they would not per, uh, proceed onto the second stage. They wouldn't get closer back to their hometown. Um, and then the the way that I set up the difficulties for this, the difficulties for the skill test was always going to remain the same. And I set it high enough so that it um, it shouldn't. It would be a tr- they had to really make sure it's someone who's skilled in it, and then they would also benefit strongly from someone assisting. Because uh, to sort of play on the the different options you have in or actions you have in the exploration mode, I gave uh, all the rest of the players uh, or the characters they had a number of different things they could do, and some of those things included like keeping watch, which would reduce the chance for uh, random encounter. Well, you know, I'm getting way ahead of myself. So first thing is they have to make a skill test. So someone's got to make a skill test, and then as I've kind of alluded to here, there someone else can, um, you know, uh, there's other players that can help with that to to get a bonus uh, to that uh, eventual skill roll. Uh, in addition, the uh, all the characters would have to make a fortitude uh, save, a fortitude uh, save against a certain number that was going to get higher with each stage. And then that number could uh, be affected by the strategy that they uh, decided on for uh, for their approach. So that whether it was you know bushwhacking over land or whether it was just making a break for it or doubling back, it would that, that would have an effect on the uh, fortitude save. Uh, and then they would also, I would make what's called a flat roll. A flat roll is basically just a, it's a d20, you don't make any modifiers, and there's a set uh, difficulty class. If I roll that number or higher, then whatever the bad thing is, it doesn't happen. And w- that's the way I incorporated random encounters for this particular thing. Is Each round, I would also make a flat check, and that was going to be the random encounter. So what um, the other players could do during that is they could... Um, you know, they, they, there were some specified actions I had, like if they could come up with a good pitch for a, a skill for me, then they could, um, uh, they could, uh, you know, make a skill check. Depending on the result, um, on a failure, nothing happens. On a success, plus one to the, the overall skill roll. Uh, critical success, plus two. A critical fumble, minus two to the roll. So uh, there was a range of different things that could happen, and I made sure that there was narrative connection for that stuff, too. They had to tell me what specifically they were doing in order to uh, to justify using that skill. They could also keep, um, keep an eye out. They could just search. And what that would do is it would drive down. Every person searching would make the the uh, flat DC of the uh, random encounter go down by one. So the more people keeping their eye out, the more they were able to avoid getting into any kind of dangerous encounter. And uh, and then I said also that you could you know look through your abilities, look through your spells. If you can come up with some other cool thing, let me know, and then we'll yeah we'll go with that. So like one character used his uh, spell called Pest Form transform into insects and kind of distract the bats that were pursuing them uh the alchemist in the party you know set off like basically a smoke bomb elsewhere that would distract them as well throw them off the trail the uh the monk character was kind of hopping through the trees and like trying to distract people as well making fake tracks in uh, in one case and then when i decided to and this is something i wish i thought of beforehand but i said like okay um in addition you know as we go through each stage 
you're free to use the same skill over and over again, but if you use a different skill, you get a free hero point. And a hero point in uh, Pathfinder 2nd is something you can spend to, to re-roll a dice roll, or you can spend all of your hero points and not die. So there's two different ways you can make use of those ability or those uh, resources. And with... Um, Let's see here. What, was there anything else that was setting for the overall structure for it? No. So, uh, so, and then at the end of each phase, what would happen is the player, the uh, pursuer, would then make a perception check against the lowest stealth DC that the characters had, and um, depending on the success, on a success, they'll you know increase the or decrease the gap by one. Uh, critical success, they'll decrease it by two. Critical fumble, they'll increase it by one, and that's kind of that's kind of it. So. I thought that would, um, you know, provide a good narrative structure for for how we were going to do the encounter and how we we're going to do model this this pursuit back. And I, I think that uh, my thought was at least was that um, it, it achieved a couple of the things that I think I didn't do on the previous times and uh, or the previous time I tried to run this is it still kept the random encounter thing. Oh, that's one other thing too. So the random encounters, rather than having just like a random roll. Uh, that would then dictate how many of these things would come. What I did is I had a random encounter, but then I set it to a relative difficulty. So it started at a certain level, and then every time that the characters took an action, that level would go up. So things would go... The, the, that was basically the re- rising danger of running into something really you know, really lethal in the barrel maze. At the time that the thing started, the sun was going down, and we've already established in the fiction that, like, night in the barrel maze is terrifying. So that was part of the, the, the sort of um, the ticking clock, you know, kind of drama, is that every every round that they spend out there, it was going to get more dangerous. I also provided a mechanic for overnighting. If the players decided to offload and try and hide for a night just to recover, you know, because they were too injured or they're out of... Um, Abilities or people were too fatigued because the the function of fatigue. If you get fatigued in Pathfinder Two, you cannot take actions during the exploration phase. All you can do is just trudge forward. So what that meant is there was less people who could help out with keeping an out for enemies or helping the the primary skill roller, you know, or whatever they were going to do. So, um, yeah. So that was the escalating thing. And then the way that I, I would set the random encounters is I would use the random encounter tables out of Barrow Maze. Uh, to, to make a roll and see what, what was encountered. But I would then basically look and see how difficult that challenge, that encounter was based on the level. And then I'd use that as my like budget to buy whatever amount of monsters that I could afford for that particular difficulty. So, for instance, if, um, say, well, they were all third level or the, the average party level was third, that would mean that, say, a creature that is a minus uh, one, uh, minus one level, so it's four levels below them, it would only cost me 10 XP. That's a 10 XP creature. They'd only gain 10 experience points for defeating that creature. Um, for those who are unfamiliar too, it's a, uh, every level in Pathfinder 2E is uh, 1,000. 1,000 XP, you go up, and you don't divide XP around people. So if a creature grants 10 XP for you know defeating it, that's what you get. And it's worth noting that the amount of XP you gain is relative to your level. It's not a flat amount for those things. So um, it's one of the neat innovations that, that Pathfinder 2E did. So what it meant is, let's say, let's say I had, you know, uh, 50 XP or 60 XP in my budget, right, for building this encounter. And I rolled skeletons. Skeletons are the, the cheapest version of them or the, the kind of most minion, you know, version is, uh, is only going to cost for those characters. 10 XP, that means I'd probably encounter five to six skeletons. And then we just kind of build the encounter and, and go from there. 
Uh, whereas if I rolled a, say, second level creature, which might be, say, 30 XP, well, I'll only have one or two of those. You know, or if I rolled something really high level, I'd just go with one of those things. And um, that allowed me to not only manage the, you know, uh, the, or account for the math that is inherent in Pathfinder 2. So, you know, it allowed me to make sure that I wasn't just having a slaughter, but I, um, I could, I don't know, I mean, I, it allowed me to keep that random element, but also allowed me to play up the, the strengths of the sort of, um, of the uh, story driving or sort of character, I guess, you know, rel- relative level of some of these encounters, you know, and with the escalating level for each of these things, boy, that was a lot of fun, you know, and I'm definitely going to make use of that again. Uh, so, and overall, so basically what happened is in our two-hour session, we managed to get through three stages, and then they, they screwed up, and, and uh, the, they failed their, their role, they kind of got themselves lost, and their pursuer caught up to them, so, and that one I set up as a, a multi-stage kind of thing. So the first thing, they, they had, had to have a combat encounter, they've got one more stage to go until they get home, um, two of the characters are fatigued. And the thing that I noticed was that, and this is what I was hoping was going to happen with this, is there was a bunch of discussion with the players as to what to do each stage. And they did take advantage of that hero point thing where they were like, okay, I'm going to switch up and do this now. Like, everyone really embraced the spirit of both um, engaging with the, the fiction to try and figure out, you know, what it's going to be narratively. I gave lots of opportunities for the players to describe what was happening and describe what we see. But also, there was fun game mechanics for them to, to decide and, and options for them to weigh. They could make a decision as to whether or not, like, uh, do we want to keep an eye out? We know that the chance of a random encounter is going up the later it gets, or do we want to, you know, just just try and make sure we, we secure a success on this dice roll? And the other thing is, is that they, I was allowing them to use their hero points on the, the dice rolls for this stuff because every time they were spending a hero point to re-roll those things, it meant another hero point that was not there in the event that they get a, a random encounter. So I think, I have to talk to my players about it, but it seemed like it was feeling as dangerous as what a random encounter could be, but it felt more, I don't know, I mean, it, it felt like a more, um, it felt like more of a game, you know, to be honest, than just them sitting there and watching me make a lot of rolls, which I did do for, for the random encounters, for the pursuers check, but, man, it made for... It was exactly what... It worked out exactly the way I intended. And I'm really, really excited to to expand those out into more overland travel. Like, it's a, it's exactly the thing that I wanted to, um, to do with this new pairing of Pathfinder 2 with Barrel Maze, which is to say, like, to create ludonarrative harmony, where the story being told by the mechanics of the game support the story we're telling in the fiction, you know, um, and I don't want, in this way, I want there to be a fun mini-game of those expeditions out to the Barrow Maze, rather than it being this slog of like, oh god, don't roll a random encounter, I'm, ah, uh, I, you know, where they have got no agency over the chance of a random encounter or not, um, I, I really, um, I'm really, really happy with the way that played out. That felt very, very fun. And one of the things that we talked about briefly after the session as well is how it made the game present in all parts of play. You know, like there's not a, a dramatic downtime. It feels exciting and thrilling. And I think it's more engaging because they're making decisions and seeing the consequences of those decisions. It is more engaging than them just 
you know, moving their, their token along two hexes and then me making a roll for random encounter and then doing my, my, you know, overblown, you know, dramatic reveal of whether they encounter something or not. Um, boy, I love that. So, so that particular aspect of the barrel maze is, is definitely working out well. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll, you know, that's a 20 minute segment. So maybe what I'll do is that's the first bit of, of the exploration and the downtime phase. And those are the ones where really it is a substantially different approach to structuring and running a campaign than what, um, you know, you do in an old school game. Let's now talk about the tactical encounters, the encounter mode and how I'm making those changes. And then the changes to life in town. Okay, so now let's talk about the tactical components of uh, Pathfinder 2E. So one of the things uh, that I found was challenging in the uh, uh, in the first time that I, I ran uh, PF2 during the playtest was well, I mean, for one, it was this is a self-inflicted wound, but I ran it with uh, without a map, without a battle map. I ran it just as Theater of the Mind which is completely ridiculous because I don't run any other game that way. You know, even at the time, I, I wasn't running games theater of mine, so I have no earthly idea why I decided to run it that way. But nevertheless, there, there it goes. Uh, and unsurprisingly, the, the, the rounds felt... I don't know, I mean, like... So to, to I guess, explain the, uh, the mechanics, PF2 mechanics are such that every round, uh, your character has... Uh, the action economy is that you've got three actions and then you have one uh, reaction that you can take with throughout the round. And then they, to basically to, to uh, interact with that, the, um, what do you call it? The, um, the reactions are, uh, oh, one second. <laughs> Sorry about that. I had a random encounter with uh, police officers. Fortunately, I did not get pulled over for distracted driving. So I can carry on as I was. Um, so the um, the action economy, as I said, is uh, three actions. Each of those actions uh, can be taken to strike, to move, to you know uh, raise a shield, uh, to uh, to engage the uh, shield benefit or the shield bonus of um, to your AC. You need to actually spend an action raising the shield. Uh, but what that also does is, if you are trained with a uh, or if you have the shield block. Uh, feet, then what you can also do is spend a uh, reaction to uh, to interpose the shield in in front of the uh, an attack, and then what you get to do is reduce the damage that it does by a the amount of the hardness of your shield, and then if you take more damage on top of that, then it's split equally between your shield and yourself. And if your shield reaches half its uh, hit points, then it becomes broken and you can no longer use it. Uh, now, the, I, the reason I mention the shield thing is because it's one of the elements of the action economy that really, really appeals to me uh, in PF2 because it really makes shields feel present and uh, a factor uh, you know, on a round-per-round basis more so than in almost any other game I've, uh, I've ever uh, run. Um, par- partly because you're, you know, there is that... Um, uh, resource management decision of like, do I make another attack with it or with my action, or do I spend the action to get that shield up and uh, get the AC bonus? And then further, do I spend my reaction interposing my shield to block a hit, or do I um, do I instead use my reaction to maybe if you are a fighter to use an attack of opportunity because they're the only ones who can make attacks of opportunity in this version. 
or you know the the paladin reaction, or rather it's called a champion, not a paladin now. But one of the different, whatever your reaction does to block damage, or or whatever your particular action does. Um, so yes, and then the, the balancing factor because you've got three actions to just you know avoid melee fighters from dominating things, or you know range attack fighters. Uh, what it is, your second uh, attack suffers a minus five multi attack penalty. Uh, or it's minus four if the weapon is agile, so it's a quicker moving weapon, um, and uh, minus ten on your third attack. Now that might seem overly punishing, but uh, the way that the math works is because things are sort of set to parity, you know, they're set relative to your level, that third attack, while certainly not an optimal attack, it's not a wasted thing. You're not waiting for a nat 20 in order to hit on it. Like you've got a reasonably a decent chance, not not uh, good by any means, but certainly not impossible. So the um, that's the the one of the things that uh, I found when we ran it the first time. I, I loved it with smaller groups, but I felt like it dragged a bit with larger groups. And um, now that I'm playing it with the battle mat, and there's I'm seeing. Well, I guess here's the things that I'm seeing is that it does run as fast. Going through individual turns is as fast in this as it is in any other game I run. You know, people taking their turn, they're, they're going to have to make decisions and then whatever. This one, the whole three-action economy seems very intuitive. So one factor that I found uh, was maybe not great when I ran it the first time. Now that we're using a battle mat, now that we're using, you know, roll 20 with the full character sheets that are tracking everything and not having people roll, you know, dice and then kind of doing the math in their head or rolling separate dice for, for damage. Now that we're using the, taking advantage of the digital, uh, tabletop, um, man, oh man, it is running. It is just humming along at a good speed. People are blowing through their turns because they know exactly what they want to do. I don't have anybody asking me about like, what can I do with the bonus action? What can I do with the swift action again? You know, it's, it's just very, very clear what's going on. Uh, we're going to, the players, I think, need a little more practice with the reactions, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it, the, the that action economy is keeping things moving along, which is important, I think, for for that speed. In Barrow Maze, combat is a it's got to be fun, you know. That's part of the reason you're you're going through. You're going to encounter dangerous things, and you want to have a fun encounter with it. But what it's not doing is. Um, uh, uh, it, it is not um, the only thing. It's not combat without purpose. It is combat that is playing up a theme or a trope, or not a theme, but not a trope, but like playing up a mood, I guess, in the in the barrow maze, in the barrow moor, which is to say that it's dangerous. You know, it's it's a lethal place where you know trouble can reach around any corner or or be lurking around any corner, and and uh, it's only by virtue of how tough and smart and whatever your heroes are that you're able to, to you know, to um, succeed against these adversaries. And uh, that's great. I mean, like, I, I really, really like that. So that that really is, to me, I mean, obviously there is more complexity to what the character's options are and what their, you know, what things they have available to do in a round. But the thing that I overwhelmingly love about PF2 is that it seems to front load that stuff at the table. The decisions you're making are not necessarily... You do have definitely interesting decisions to make on the character generation side, but you've also got so many interesting decisions to make on a round-per-round -round basis about what you choose to do and how you choose to approach it. And uh, it also has a lot more 
uh, mechanics or a lot more sort of elements that encourage you to say yes to your players. In particular, the all the different combat maneuvers that used to be in in like third edition 3.5 Pathfinder, and maybe they're only introduced in Pathfinder actually. But it's the things that used to be like bull rush and uh, you know grappling and whatnot. All of that stuff does not. There's no front loaded penalty to it. All you do is, if you're trained in athletics, they're all expressions of the athletic skill. And you don't have to be trained in it to do it. It's just that you go, you know, if you're trained in it, you'll have a better chance of succeeding. But what that allows is all those kind of cool, non-just like hit with weapon options that uh, players like to do. The things I love seeing players do, you know, engage the fiction where they're going to be grappling and trying to wrestle an owl bear to the ground. Or, you know, we had a really one of our most fun kind of unusual encounters in our Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea games was where one of the players decided to try and grapple a uh, an elk, a giant elk to the ground. It was crazy. and It was a great scene. And um, I really love that that is, you know, that's another way that the game says yes. Uh, like, do cool stuff. There aren't front-loaded penalties in it. That also makes for really fun. I think it makes for, you know, for a game that is a new, a brand-new game, it allows you to embrace that old-school creativity. You know, one of the, in the, the OSR sort of um, manifesto that is available online, and it's not what it's called, but it's a thing that sort of sets out uh, a vision for what old school play is. You know, it's the it's the interfacing with the fiction and the setting to try and source things out. You know, it's describing what your character's looking for and how they're feeling along edges and stuff like that. You know, it's it's not just reducing you, you know your interaction with the dangerous environment to I make an X roll, you know, a perception check or whatever. It's there. There is a um, a clear. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there is an actual uh, a way of, of where the, you benefit mechanically from interfacing with the fiction. So it's not quite the same thing where it's just description and it's just, you know, like, oh, I looked under the sixth cobblestone to the left and I've discovered whatever, you know, which... Uh, and I, to be honest, I mean, that's not how you play in, in AD&D or those old school games anyway. But, you know, that, that's sort of what is, is depicted as the ideal situation in that manifesto. I think there is so much of that available in Pathfinder 2 because of how flexible uh, the skills are and how flexible the um, the task resolution is. You know, it's easy to figure out what to, you know, eyeball, if you will, what, um, you know, what should be used and, and what the results are. So it's just a great, um, a great game that, that I think helps realize the game because the more people are um, interfacing with the fiction and using that to build on their own descriptions of what their characters are doing, uh, both mechanically and narratively, it just makes for a, a a better and more immersive collaborative experience for everyone involved. So it's a really, um, yeah, it's a really, really great, uh, it's a great experience for it, you know, and uh, I like that the players have a lot of, uh, a lot of options, you know, they've got some cool things they can do, but it does not feel, um, it doesn't feel like the, the arbitrary, not arbitrary, but like the kind of indistinct list of random powers that you would get in 4th edition. I ran a lot of 4th edition D&D and I love the the tactical death and that was a lot of fun but it was really 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 gamey. Very uh, gamist kind of thing and it felt kind of like the differences between the different classes were blending away and I do not get that sense with Pathfinder 2. So it captures or continues to have that really interesting um 
you know, tactical depth and, and of wealth of options that you get from a lot of modern games, but it plays quick and it, yeah, I think it encourages you to get back into the fiction as well too. And like, obviously there, there are, you know, you can just run it the way you would run Pathfinder 1, which I have seen played at times where it's really just kind of like a board game with some accoutrements to it, but you can also run old school D&D like that as well too. You know, um, Labyrinth Lord or Basic D&D, it could absolutely be run just like that as well, where it doesn't have that same, um, yeah, that same kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, like the, the same immersion. You know, uh, old school D&D needs to be run with a good hand. You know, it needs to be run with the perspective of making the game and the experience at the table transcend the rules, you know, as simplistic as they are. And I think that the tactical play in this, it allows you to do, it makes it for a really, really good game, but it also provides you some tools to help transcend that. It's not working against that the way that I think Pathfinder 1 was. Pathfinder 1, you spend a lot of time talking about situational modifiers and shit like that. Um, you don't do that in PF2. There's a very limited amount of uh, bonuses that, that are available you know, in the thing, and uh, it's very much left to the DM as to what they are. So... You know, there are ways to avail yourself of uh, circumstantial bonuses, but you're not, like, searching your character sheet to find all the different situational bonuses that you could stack up to do whatever thing you're going to do. You know, it's very, um, very in the moment and at the table, and that's precisely how I like to play, is with the, the attention focused at the table and what's going on and what interesting decisions you get to make in the moment. And primarily, I mean, I guess, like, overall, that is the, the primary reason why I am very very excited about this campaign as is likely obvious by the you know pace of my speech and the inflection i got i just love this game like it's it's this second time around so far is proving to be just a shit ton of fun and i'm really really enjoying it um last thing i'll do i'll, I'll end the section here on the tactical encounters in my pf2 barrow and let's finally do the last section on um, players and how I'm setting up the, the sort of roster of players that we're playing with. All right, so the last thing I want to tackle is the selection of players for it. And I mean, it's not so much selection um, as it is just how, you know, players make their way to the uh, Pathfinder to Barrel Maze game. So the previous version, like I said at the outset of this uh, uh, this episode, I, um, I initially had... Um, had basically had an open table and then uh, whoever was there that day what we would do is you know we'd go through the rigmarole of rolling up what henchmen were available we'd go out uh or the guys would go out into the barrow maze they may encounter random stuff on the way out there and um that was kind of you know so I, I, while we were playing pathfinder 2 they didn't even actually locate the entrance to the barrow maze i don't think that happened until after we made the switch to scarlet heroes uh, but I mean, we did, they did reveal quite a bit of other stuff. Uh, they did, well, that's not really true either. They revealed a couple things. Um, but you know, the first levels in the barrel maze, like low level play is really challenging because, you know, even in an old school game, there's just some, there's some really dangerous stuff that wanders around the barrel maze. So I think that maybe that, that did make sense. And I wonder whether, you know, the initial players, the reason they've got such favorable, favorable memories of it is because it was earned, you know, like them discovering that entrance, they earned that. They they faced the random encounters, they, you know, tested their luck and whatnot and just got themselves out there. So 
I'm curious to see whether that's, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I know that the game resonated with those earlier players in spite of the rocky, you know, way I was running it at first. But uh, this time around, um, what I'm doing is uh, something similar to what I have been doing in my, um, I've been running it for the last maybe about two months. I, uh, the using Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, uh, I've been running a well, house ruled heavily to allow for more traditional fantasy uh, characters. Um, I've been running a modified version of the bound, um, not the bound of the boneyard. It's uh, the first module called the um, Dead Roads uh, for the uh, most recent Pathfinder Adventure Path for first edition, uh, called the uh, Tyrant's Grasp. And uh, it actually, it's been going really, really well. Like that, that's been a lot of fun. Um, but uh, what we had is just basically we would play with whoever was there. Whoever happened to be in attendance, we would just run the, um, you know, run the game with that, whoever was there. And, and we kind of had an explanation because they were in kind of like the afterlife, the boneyard. Uh, we would just have players phase out or phase back in depending on who was there. And, um, you know, th- that experience and then also the experience with um, running the, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, running the other Ash game, where we just, you know, players who were there, whose characters were not, um, you know, who were not, uh, uh, or rather the players who, who were, uh, characters who were in the game, or wherever we left things off, but their players weren't there at that time, we just ignore them. You know, and um, I've mentioned in the podcast before, like, the, the weird thing about games, about role-playing games, is, um, you know, it, it's it's not, uh, while there are similarities between role-playing games and, um, you know, television and film and stuff like that, we, um, it, it's not the same thing, you know, like, it is not um, of paramount importance, I think, to any player character uh, or any uh, uh, player in, in one of the games to have a, you know, in-fiction explanation for why there's, you know, certain characters are not going to be responding or whether you have to have every character in there. Um, you know, I think players, they don't really, to be honest, they don't really give a shit. They want to get there and play and have a good time. Uh, and they don't really care of, you know, for the explanation of, well, so-and-so is, is, is here, so we're going to NPC them or, or whatever. Like, it, I, I've what I've been doing over the last little while is just that whatever the person... Whatever the character is who is uh, whose player is not there, I just have them hang in the background. Or if it's really necessary that they interact, like say they're the only healer and there's a, a significant combat encounter, well then I'll just uh, excuse me. That's terribly rude to yawn on a podcast. Um, um, the uh, what what we'll do is just I'll, I'll NPC them have them do what they need to do, you know, if it's uh, banking spells or whatever else, and or, um, you know, spamming spells uh, to, to heal people. But, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter, you know, and uh, the, it, it makes, it changes things up maybe a little bit because we stream all of our games, but even then, I don't think the like, no one, it, it's, not a, it's not a film, you know, and uh, the way that we run our games on the, on the channel uh, you know, like I don't, um, I, we, we don't perform for people, right? Like we're not, uh, it is not a performance piece. It's us playing a game and, you know, people sometimes will interact with the chat or they'll watch it later or whatever, but, uh, it's not an actual, you know, it's, it's not a performance. We're not, 
We don't have any script or anything like that we're running from. So it's even though it's being streamed, it's still not uh, uh, f- it's not like that kind of TV show. So for this one, I'm just gonna you know we're we're ca- we're carrying on with a story, you know, on a on a session to session basis uh, because that was one thing that was definitely lacking from Baromaze the first time around because we were always ending up in the back of, in town at the end of uh, each session. It didn't necessarily give us a chance to let some story develop, but in this way. I'm hoping that we um, that we will. You know, we'll allow. Uh, well, I, not I mean, I, I, I'm hoping. I know we have. We've played about four sessions so far in this new campaign, and we've seen. You know, even though it's not the same players at the table each time, we've seen some development, and we're seeing a lot more players come in too. It's funny because I think I mentioned earlier, uh, we're at the outset of this episode as well. Like this, I've not seen players as keen on playing in a game in a really long time, you know, I, and I, I'm not even sure ever, like even when it was streaming, I've had people who have, uh, you know, when I've sent out invites to the group to say, hey, you know, you want to play in blah, 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 and uh, I'll hear back, like, you know, from from players um, to, you know, my proposals for games, but I've, I've never had a game where people have just unprompted, e- you know, sent me an email saying, hey, can we play in this, or hey, I want to play in, in the game if you can find a time. Uh, so, so that's exciting. I mean, you know, it's it's um, the fact that I'm excited about the game and that the players are excited about the game. Like that's all that make that is ripe ground in which to grow a really great campaign. And so far, we've been having a lot of fun. You know, and even the players who um, who can't attend sometimes, uh, it's great because we see them in chat quite often. Uh, you know, we, we one of our uh, regular players who used to play on the channel quite a bit, James. Uh, he's just due to life circumstances, has not been able to participate in the game for, for the last little while. But now that we're back at Pathfinder 2, boy, is he excited. And he does show up in chat quite often. Uh, he, actually, even when we played Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea, he was quite in, uh, uh, you know, interested in joining us in chat quite often uh, a lot during live play. And uh, same thing in Starfinder, I guess. But anyway, I'm getting distracted here. What I mean to say is that um, it's going to be a pretty good, I think it's going to be a pretty exciting campaign, you know. I mean, it uh, it lends itself to people jumping in, jumping out, because there's not, uh, you know, I mean, um, I'm not really concerned with having to come up with some story reason for why the person's not going on and not, uh, you know, why the person's uh, character is suddenly gone. Um, but it also allows us to really build up more of, uh, you know, explore more of the story uh, of what's going on and uh, and to carry on. And also get to indulge one of my favorite things with uh, setting up uh, campaigns, which is to say I get to use cliffhangers, you know. And I love ending sessions with cliffhangers because I, I, I like giving players reasons. And I mean viewers at home as well to hopefully enjoy that. But I, uh, I love leaving the players with a... Um, you know, a bit of a cliffhanger. And I realized I may have had my finger over the mic for the last little while, so hopefully I, I did not. But, uh, but anyway, so that's that's the big change. Is that you know I'm um, I'm, I'm make I'm much much less concerned about uh, ending the session where we left things last time because that's just it's just not. Uh, I don't think I really care about that. It's I don't need to have a cohesive st- story for or explanation for why there's different faces at the table. I just need to have you know, um, a good, make sure we have a good time. And also, I mean, it does give kind of a, a fun way to, to allow for the players to do a recap because if you're putting it on the players to explain in character to the other characters who are not there, 
what has happened and whatnot. It's a good way to, I mean, for one thing, to, to let the players do the heavy lifting in terms of the recap and also get a sense of what they actually remembered from last session. Like, what are the, what are the things that I did uh, or we did, we did last session that really did stand out to them? So, anyway, so that is the player. Uh, and, I mean, I guess for the, the player pool, the one downside to the, the timing of, as to how we're, we're running things right now is that uh, it is... Um, evening in North America, which means that some of our European players can't join, uh, so that's that's unfortunate, but I'm running uh, a Pathfinder one-shot on, uh, or Pathfinder 2E uh, one-shot on uh, Saturday morning that'll allow some of our European players to give it a, a, a taste of it, so that'll be interesting, but but anyway, that's, uh, that is our Barrow Maze campaign. I guess let's uh, end this segment here and make with the outro. Okay, so that is the episode, uh, the campaign corner for my Back in the Barrow Maze Pathfinder 2nd Edition campaign set in Greg Gillespie's very awesome Barrow Maze Complete. Um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this, you can shoot me a voice message on Anchor. You can uh, reach me on uh, Twitter at Dungeon Musings, or you can shoot me an email at Dungeon Musings. You can also find me lurking multiple times a week on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. So if you want to check uh, me out on there too, you can find me live or you know leave a message uh, on uh, one of the videos. Uh, if you are interested in um, Pathfinder 2nd Edition and you have not explored it yet, I have recorded a uh, two-and-a-half-hour comprehensive overview and um, review of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition game that's got... a more views right now than any of the other videos on the channel so if you do really want to learn what it's like there's that there and also you can join us of course uh live on the channel or later uh archived uh, to uh to see our, our barrow maze campaign because uh, we are streaming all of those sessions and i plan on doing a uh a video this weekend as well too about um a, a mini game about that uh, travel game uh, that i set up so you could check that out as well um now um yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. That is the brings us to the end of this session. For those who have listened, thank you so much for uh, listening all the way through on this. Um, again, like please don't be a stranger if you do have any comments, questions, or concerns about this. I'd I'd love to hear what uh, uh, other people are doing with uh, Pathfinder Second Edition, or uh, you know if you've got any experience running uh, Barrowmies with uh, anything other than Labyrinth Lord or Five E, like the ones that it's designed for. So. Um, otherwise, uh, thanks again for listening, and until next time, happy gaming. <laughs>